We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long-form conversation. Zach Samara, National Director of Immigrant Connection, joins the podcast to discuss welcome and how a small-town church sparked a movement to serve over 11,000 immigrant families. Zach Samara. We are so glad to have you at All That to Say. Thanks for joining us today. I'm so glad to be here, Jim. Thanks. And I just want to say to anyone listening, tuning in, or watching on YouTube, we hope that you will stay with us in this conversation because it's a really important conversation for this moment in time. If you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to All That to Say. If you're on social media, send us a comment or send up a like. If you're on one of those platforms like Spotify or iTunes, let us know and let the world know that you tuned in. We're so glad for your support and engagement. And Zach, you're here today because you have developed a avocation, a, a kind of uh, obsession almost, in a really healthy way to problem solve on the issue of immigration in this country, in the United States these days. And it's such a fantastic story. I can't wait to get into it. But before we do that, I'd like people to know just a little bit more about Zach and his family. So Zach, right now you live in a place called Logansport, Indiana, right? Yeah, and I'm sure everyone knows exactly where that is. So give us an idea. Where is that? <laughs> so Logansport, Indiana is uh, in between uh, Indianapolis and Chicago, south of South Bend, it's kind of an hour from everywhere in Indiana, and most people don't know where everywhere is in Indiana. It's just north-central Indiana. Yeah, but uh, honestly, you're almost at a crossroads. I mean, people aren't driving through Logan's Port to go any of those places per se, but it's close to those places, which means it has uh, a lot of uh, access to various population groups and communities that otherwise not, might not be imagined in a rural Indiana town. There's that. Did you grow up in Indiana, Zach? I grew up in Northeast Ohio, yeah. Well, close by. <laughs> yeah, in the Midwest. Right? And you're married? Yep. I'm married to Lindy. She's a special educator. She actually is in charge of our Logan Sport School Corporation. She does all the special education. She's the director. So, Good. And you have a little one at home? Yep. He turns 12 soon. So yeah, he's in sixth grade, Isaac. Oh. Oh, for the good old days when my kids were 12. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you and your wife uh, didn't start out to like embrace immigrants or think about refugees or figure out how the law works. You were not engaged that way. You pursued first together a, a vocational assignment abroad. Yeah, I've served both in Papua New Guinea and Bougainville, actually, and then also in, in northern Mozambique and Africa. And so ever since I was a kid, even though I wasn't raised, uh, I was raised in a, in a great home that my mom and dad loved Jesus and we were raised in the church, but it wasn't like my dad was a pastor or a missionary. But ever since I was really young, like four or five, I wanted to be a missionary. Um, and I don't know why. I never felt like called to a specific place, but I just always wanted to do that. And so I served right after um, I graduated with my undergrad, and then I went back to seminary. And then my wife and I, along with Isaac, was one at that time. You know, we went to Mozambique uh, to serve overseas. So yeah, that's where I thought I'd spend the rest of my life. But as it turned out, not exactly a fit for you and your family, and you found yourself coming back home. Um, 
I think it's an important piece of your story, though, because uh, you have a certain affinity or understanding or heart for various cultures and communities that maybe wouldn't always be found in a small town in North Ohio or in Indiana. But that said, you came back to the States. You're a part of the Wesleyan Church, which is a, a wonderful family within the larger body of Christ. And uh, uh, some of the folks that you work with at the Wesleyan Church said, well, now that you're back, we've got a job for you, which sent you to Logansport, right? Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't a job I think most people would have signed up for. I mean, I personally, and this is a whole other story, but I mean, I just wanted to get back overseas as quickly as possible. But we just weren't in a healthy place, like relationship, spiritually, like physically, emotionally, like we needed healing. And so it's like, where where do you go to find healing if you're in ministry? It's like, hopefully, maybe I could have been a staff pastor at a healthy church. They were thinking that maybe we would help uh, plant a church in a college town. But in the meantime, they asked if I would go to Logansport to help close a church. Because there was a church kind of weak need, uh, not much promise. That's what's the the take on it. Yeah, and so the the district had kind of already decided it was on the short list, it had been in decline for, for decades, and so they they had tried to find a pastor and couldn't, and they just decided, you know, it was less than 20 people, um, we just need to kind of preach it, you know, a few more months uh, until we'll, we'll just close it. And you landed in Logansport with this kind of unenviable assignment, uh, a little bit like... Uh, Lord Lewis Mountbatten sent to India <laughs> to, to get it out of the empire, so to speak. Uh, you have this kind of burdensome assignment that uh, is a tall mountain to climb. You land in this little town. And tell us about Logansport, because an interesting dynamic to your story is that you're in Logansport, of all places, developing an interest and an investment in immigrants. What, what's Logansport and why there? Yeah, Logansport is such, I mean, I love this community. I'll spend the rest of my life in this community. Like, uh, I just, I fell in love with it when I came. It has a rich history that has always been tied to immigrants. The The Erie Canal came through there, and so Irish and German did the canal. There were more railways that went through Logansport than even Indianapolis. And so just this transportation hub, like you said, a kind of a crossroads. So a lot of Italian immigrants. And so um, that was a huge bulk. But, I mean, it was primarily white. Um, in fact, in the late 90s, 98%. So unlike other small communities that at least have like an African-American population, there wasn't much diversity at all in Logansport. But um, a, a meat processing plant came to Logansport. And with it, um, you go from like 2000 uh, to 2010. Now there's like about 26% non-white. Now there's 36% non-white, 17% foreign-born population in my city, 17%. And this is agricultural Indiana. Yes. I mean, this is I mean, a community of only 18,000 in a county of like only like 60,000, like cornfields all around. And yet the world has decided to call it home to the point, you know, the, the next, the only community in all of Indiana that has a higher population of foreign-born is West Lafayette, but they counted when Purdue University was in session. So I always joke, like, I don't yeah. know, you know, there was a, a lot, lot of students from abroad at Purdue. Of exactly. Course. So we yeah. we kind of probably are number one, the number one community. Mm -hmm. And so not Indianapolis, South Bend, you know, Mishawaka, these other Evansville, a city around Louisville, but but this town you know, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of everywhere, however you want to say it, you know, the world has decided to call this place home. So I came 
And to be completely honest, I, this is all Jesus because my wife and I said we'd give them two weeks and then someone else could take that assignment. We didn't want it. The second week, uh, there was a family, an immigrant family. Um, it was a host hosting model before we came and, and both pastors had left. And so there were a few uh, Latino families and then there were a few white families that were attending. Um, and, and one of these families that were immigrants from Mexico took us to a restaurant and they they loved us. They welcomed us. They treated us like people, like not as projects. You know, we had just come from the mission field and everyone That's else right. kind of, and, and, and even with their, their, their broken English and our broken Portuguese, because Mozambique was a Portuguese speaking country, like we felt loved and welcomed in a way that we had never felt before. And my wife, who at that time, the depression was like off the charts, like we got back in our car after having a lunch and we were supposed to leave Logansport and never return. That was our second week. And I still distinctly remember she looked at me and she said, we're home. And, and it was because we were welcomed by immigrants. Like my passion for welcoming immigrants was because they welcomed a, you. An immigrant welcomed me. Yeah. To Logansport, Indiana. <laughs> exactly. Oh, this is extraordinary, really. <laughs> yeah. And, and here you've described a community that has to have been through some stress in the dramatic change you've described, uh, a monochrome, monolithic culture uh, within the short span of less than two decades mm. has been completely changed to where a third of the people are yeah. are not a part of that original uh, monochrome community. And you're saying 17% were not even born in this country. In other words, they're not even descended from other generations yeah. who have come to the country, but they are actually first generation here. Yeah. I mean, that has to have a lot of impact on the social fabric and the economic fabric and just the demographic of the community. How has Lookinport managed that? I mean, everything's been smooth or do you think there's some, some barriers or some apprehension? Yeah, it, it's, it's been unique in the sense that uh, everyone's been on this learning curve. I will say that um, because Jesus is just so amazing and, and because the bridge, this church that I have the privilege of pastoring, you know, because we came 10 years ago, like kind of right in the midst of some of this, we have become kind of this influential hub, this this place that really should be closed, that most people I think already thought had been closed, all of a sudden has become this point, like it was, it was renamed the bridge before I even came. And I'm super grateful for whoever did that because we're on a river right next to a bridge, but, but we have been a bridge for our community. We are the place where, where everyone could come and feel welcome. Uh, we host a lot of community development, a lot of events where it's like, how do we because like here, here's the thing, and I'm I'm notorious for using the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. It was like the Holy Spirit had to call Philip twice. The first time he was proximate, you know, he he was on the same road with someone who was different, and then the Holy Spirit kind of had to tap him on the shoulder and say, "I'm not okay with just being close. I need you to kalao." That's what happens, I think, a lot of times in communities. You have diversity in communities, so the demographic, the numbers have changed. But relationally, things haven't really People changed. People are still not close. Exactly. And so the bridge and, and part of our work in the community has been saying, no, we believe the Holy Spirit calls us to kalao, not just to say our kids go to the same school and, and we might work, you know, in the same space, but we never really sit in the cafeteria to get, you know, it's like, <laughs> no, God, God isn't okay with just 
because the reality is, you know, the the census shows even if population is declining in some communities, diversity is going up almost everywhere. And sometimes we pat ourselves on the back, but it's like, well, no. No, God calls us to more than that. God calls us to say, how do we build relationships? How do we welcome? How do we befriend? How do we get to know our neighbors' names, even if their names have an enye in it or an accent or, you know, yes, like yes. how do we do that? And so I would say um, by by just Jesus being amazing, the bridge has got to like ride this along with Logansport as a community and say, how do we get better? And we're not, we're not perfect by any means, but I will say um, we have leaders who value and say, how do we get behind this and how do we get better, uh, you know, at, at actually being a community that wants to be welcoming, not just a community that says the statistics say, but a community that says, no, we are a welcoming community. You referred to a story from the New Testament, Philip, um, one of the deacons of the early church who finds himself on a road with an Ethiopian. And your point is that it was not enough to be on the road uh, the Lord said to Philip, you, you got to get in the chariot with this guy who's riding down the road. You yeah. have to be close by. And I'm hearing you describe a scenario where your local congregation has become the bridge, a bridge, a, a centrifugal force in helping the community come to terms with its new reality. It's not that you caused that reality. It's just that how do we maximize this reality? Yeah. And who do we want to be going forward? Welcoming. Yeah. You know, that all led to uh, this organization you lead, Zach, called Immigrant Connection. And the name puts it right out there. This is about immigrants and connecting. How did that start? I mean, you, obviously, it, it grew out of this congregation, which you had been sent to close, but something happened. Yeah. How did it start? So um, when, when the goal is to close something, obviously that leaves ideas wide open. You can try anything, the worst that can happen Nothing is, to lose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what do you do, close us? <laughs> yeah, and so like we just kind of say, what would it be to be a multicultural, multilingual church, go in, make everyone uncomfortable? Like, you know, if it's truly multicultural, that means that even me as, as a white male pastor should be uncomfortable in the service I'm supposed to be leading. So we did that, and so we started building more relationships with immigrants who would mm -hmm. attend. Mm -hmm. And time and time again, the question was related to, you know, immigration, paperwork, forms, documents, driver's license. And once again, you know, I, my, my training was missionary anthropology. You know, I'm an, I'm an ordained Wesleyan pastor, but like I, I come at things from a different angle. So my assumption was you don't always create things. Like on the mission field, a lot of it is saying, well, you know, this organization, you know, this NGO or this church does that well. Like not everyone has to dig wells because this group is doing that. And so my assumption was since everyone had the same question, immigration legal services, it was like, go there. <laughs> And then there was no there. Like I said, you know, the closest there was Chicago or Indianapolis, and people were spending thousands and thousands of dollars. And it was like... Because the cost of legal help in those yes. places was over the top. Yeah. yeah. Immigration attorneys are very expensive. It's hard to get in a lot of times because the need is so great. And, and then we found out in 2013 that all the way from back in the 50s, there's been this program in the Department of Justice that a non-attorney, if they would get training and experience, prove competency through passing a test, applying to multiple government agencies, but they would allow a non-attorney that was tied to a non-profit organization to practice immigration law. 
And I'm an idea person and uh, I have lots of ideas. And so most of them need sorted through. And my wife does that. And she's like, these ones are all really bad. Uh, in that one, we joke in 2013, Lindy's like, let's do it. It's going to help our friends. It's going to help these, these people. My first clients were the, the family that, that welcomed Welcome us. It was like, we, we want to help them. We want to return uh, the welcome. And so she said, let's do that, thinking that we would help you know, a few friends. What, what's amazing about that story is... Um, this really kind of th- this program got larger in the '90s when Reagan uh, gave the ability for a lot more people to have access to lawful permanent residence or getting a green card. Um, about 300, 400 nonprofits rose up, but they were primarily like parachurch organizations if they were involved with faith, or they were like ethnic organizations, mm-hmm. like um, you know the Asian American community of Central Indiana or something. But the whole time it was like churches. Are nonprofits like yeah, they why, qualified? Exactly. Yeah. Sure. It's like why won't churches do this? So when we did this and we opened in 2014, we were one of less than five churches in the whole country to ever, ever do that. And so, and it was all birthed in saying, you know, this was the number one felt need. Everyone was asking about this, and there was no other place to go. So like we should do this, especially because we're the church, especially because. And I'm sure we'll unpack this later, but I mean, th- this is part of the ethic of what it means to follow God and follow Jesus. And, um, and that birthed this movement that has grown because what we found was immigrants now live in lots of places. I mean, you grew up in Seattle. It used to be like it was on the coast, big mm-hmm. cities. It's like now we're talking about Logansport, like rural areas, suburban areas, middle of nowhere places. And most law firms, we need more immigration law firms. I love immigration attorneys. If you're an immigration attorney, thank you for your work if you're listening. But there's just not enough. 45 million, probably the census will say it's probably up to 50 million maybe immigrants live in our country. There's only about 15,000 immigration attorneys. There's less than 1,000 of these nonprofits. I mean, the need is great. And the only way this need is going to go to a place like Logansport, Indiana is because churches go where people go, you know? And so there, there are churches even in these small communities that have need. And so, so we quickly realized this needs to be more than immigrant connection at the bridge in Logansport. You know, this needs to be something that churches do far and wide uh, all around because this is a huge need and we need the church to step into it. And it's something that can be reproduced. Yes. I'm hearing you describe a... A ministry, uh, an opportunity, an organizational model that actually is sanctioned by the federal government of the United States, if you play by their rules, uh, do the homework, the training, you can then become yourself, uh, recognized yourself, your local church, your persona, uh, as as someone who has the legal and authentic expertise to help someone navigate immigration law in this country. This is not about helping people escape the law, but actually to work within the legal framework. Is that right? That's correct. I mean, there's very few things I can think of that the federal government says, you know, here's something we want you to do as the church. You know, we, we you're a nonprofit, so you can get the training and then immigrants can come to you for you to navigate through this complex purpose. If you're confused and you're listening, one of the things to think about is like, um, at one time, I was able to do my taxes myself, but at some point, tax law gets so complicated, and I'm not going to a professional be 
because I want to escape that. Compl- it's because I don't want to pay a dollar too much or a dollar too little. It's like, will you help me navigate? Well, most people who understand law, immigration law and tax law are the two most complex in the legal code. And in the same way, most people can't do it alone. E- even if you are fluent in English and you're well-educated, it doesn't. It's just too complex. And so what we get to do when you're a legal representative is help people navigate through the law as it's currently written. You know, it's not like we get, sometimes I tell people, it's like not just because someone tells a compelling story that we just say, oh, in that case, here you go. It's like, no, you know, we listen, we try to see, is there pathways? Is there any way to navigate? And if people have a pathway, we help walk through this complex system, fill out the forms, you know, gather the documents and and file cases for them. So let's just, let's just break down the model a little bit and, and how does that work? I mean, it all sounds like, Wow. Um, let's say I'm a, uh, recently arrived uh, from Latin America. I am not in the country legally. By that, I mean I, I haven't gone through a process. I've somehow landed here. Maybe I have a friend or a relative or somebody, and they got me a job at Tyson's chicken plant in Logansport, let's say. I'm trying to figure out how do I get to stay here and and there may be, and there's a hundred other stories behind me of why I'm here and why I crossed the border. That person can come to the Bridge Church where you are, and then what happens to them? And yeah. I should say they're not coming for study service per yeah. se, but they're coming because they've heard at that place they're going to help me. Yeah, and and you bring up a, a point that would be really a, a sad one that we have to do if someone has just crossed and and they have what's called. Uh, entering without inspection. First off, because Tyson uses E-Verify, they would never be able to be employed. Yes, yes. Um, but like when people like that come, we we usually have to tell them the, the hard truth that under current immigration law, if someone entered without inspection and they don't like like don't have any relationships to a U.S. citizen or lawful permanent resident, that under current law that makes them removable. And so in those cases, we kind of talk through the fact that there isn't a pathway. And then what we become is bearers of truth to say, don't waste your, like there's a lot of people that will pray and victimize that and say, if you give me this much money, I'll get you. It's like, look, there's there, no way. there isn't going to be a way forward. And so we kind of talk through that. However, and, and depending on our offices in Logansport, we do have a lot of people that that might be their story, and there's nothing we can do other than share the truth and help protect them from, from actually wasting money or putting themselves in a difficult situation. But other people come to us, and it might be that, you know, hey, I, I've been here for years, I now have a green card, but I had to leave my two youngest children in Southeast Asia when I came, and I really want to be reunited with them. And we help file the paperwork. Or there are people who come and they say, you know, I came as a student and, uh, you know, I overstayed that visa, but I, but I came in with status and, you know, now I fell in love and I'm getting married. Is there anything I can do? And like, there's a way forward for those. And so what all of our, our representatives do in churches is we listen to all the unique stories and then we try to see what are the pathways that they might fit in. And like I said, depending where 
where our, our, our site is. Like if our site has a lot of refugees, refugees have clear paths forward. Refugees come with lawful status and then they can become, go from refugee to a lawful permanent resident to a citizen. And so an office that has a high refugee population is almost always helping people. Mm-hmm. Where sometimes in mine, only half the people that come to us and share their story and we learn what the situation is, do we say, oh, there is something we can do. In a lot of cases, there isn't. And yet, all of us would say the great win in this is like we still are serving because, as I shared, there's a lot of people who who paid a lot of money and it didn't get them anywhere because there was nowhere really, you know, mm-hmm. to go. And I'm hearing you say then that you actually will talk to anyone and tell them the truth. Yeah, very <laughs> and, much so. And do so at uh, a cost that's accessible. Yeah, and for those where you identify there is a legal pathway, uh, is that really a crowd of people? That there are people in our country who have actually a pathway towards legal residency who may somehow have missed the boat or have not filed the appropriate paperwork or whatever. They're they're in danger then, as it were, under the law, and that's really the place where you can help bring to a happy outcome. Yeah, yeah. And and we help. I mean, I think sometimes people often think when it comes to immigrants, so 45 million immigrants in the country, the census data will make it probably more. 23 million are already naturalized U.S. citizens. So someone like that might come in or even a native born U.S. citizen might come into one of our offices because they fell in love on a mission trip and got married or they lived overseas. And so we had a lot of just native-born U.S. citizens that are our clients because they're trying to bring immigrants who are mm-hmm. related they're to them They're trying in. to reach for family. Yep. Mm-hmm. Then there's 13 million that are lawful permanent residents, sometimes called green card holders. 11 million of that 13 million are eligible to naturalize. So often they come in and they say, I need to renew my green card. And we're saying, can I talk you out of that? I think it'd be much better if we help you. And usually they're they're afraid of that interview because it is complicated and there's these questions. To and, become a naturalized citizen. Yep, and we can help them become a citizen. Then there's about 2 million that we call it temporary lawful status. That would be like the dreamers. And so we helped when uh, our office was open and we helped a few hundred students get this temporary status. It isn't a pathway to citizenship, but it lets them get a driver's license, get lawful mm-hmm. employment, go to college. We have a few hundred people do that. That was like amazing. And then there's about the 11 million that you talk to that are undocumented. Either they had status and they overstayed it or they just crossed. And, and what I often share with you about Immigrant Connection is mostly when we say immigrants in our country, just because of the news cycle and how it works, the picture we paint is undocumented or unauthorized. And the reality is, is the average immigrant has status. And we're just helping them keep status or move forward in the Mm -hmm. status or reunite families. And yes, a lot of Immigrant Connections work is also someone that has no status that says, is there a way for me to do it? But that's just a, a part of our work. There's there's a, a, a much probably greater work in reuniting families and helping people that that have it not lose it, um, you know, renew it or move forward in the process, if you will. And so that was one of the things, you know, you mentioned early on that this is now like my, my life, my vocation, but I had no idea that. I mean, when if I would have closed my eyes even 10 years ago and you would have said, think of an immigrant, 
I would have had this one story, this this one narrative that is, you know, probably someone from Central America that crossed the border, you know, to to get a job or whatever. And but it's like then all of a sudden I've realized like our offices have served like over 130 nations of origin. And in Logansport. In Lo- yeah. And so it's like, you know, how does that happen? And everyone has this unique story that we can we can help. So I mean I know, Zach, that there's been a lot of um just numeric testimony about this. How many people do you think Immigrant Connection has actually helped and in what ways? Yeah. I, you know, give me some numbers. Yeah, so at least over eleven thousand families. And so that'd be a lot more than just 11,000 because usually it's not an individual. It's it's a household. Re- yeah. It's a relationship. There's, and so, you know, out of that, probably um, over a thousand, we've helped become naturalized U S citizens. Um, and we, we joke that, um, you know, sometimes around where our sites are, you know, especially in a small town like Logansport, we helped so many more eligible voters come. We could have swung an election like in our community yeah. just because there's there's more people that are now eligible to take part in that. Um, we've reunited about 900 families. And in and, and that, like, the amazingness of getting a front row seat of that transformation, of like being around, like if you're a parent listening, it's like imagine not being able to hug your kids for years. And some of our offices have like driven their clients to the airport when that reunion happens. I mean, it's just amazing to get a front row seat at that. So we've helped reunite families. Like I said, we've helped a lot of DACA kids. Probably we're getting close to a thousand children who we've helped get DACA and go to school and get their their jobs. DACA meaning? Yeah, sorry. DACA is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival. So it's the often usually we say the dreamers, the, dreamers. Mm-hmm. the ones that came when they were children and are able to to, to move um, into a status that isn't permanent. This is the thing that's okay. always hard. It's this liminal status, which is one of the things that out of that eleven thousand families, those are the unique ones. But many of them we've served numerous times. So like most of the people that have come to me that are dreamers, you know, I help file their initial and I've helped renew it twice already, or they'll get married and then like we'll do a marriage-based petition. And so a lot of these people, and this is why it's such an amazing ministry in a church, is it's sustainable, it's healthy, you're building capacity. And I can't think of any other ministry where you meet a stranger and within 30 minutes, you know their whole story. story. And then you get to join that story and walk with them because no immigration process takes shorter than months to years. It's, it's always a long journey. <laughs> yeah. And so you get to walk with people. And I, I can't tell you how many times where, you know, they had an approval and then it was, they had to go through like the consulate in a foreign country to come in with a visa and someone like, I've only known them by a picture and they'll bring them into the church for the first time and say, you know, this is my husband or this is my father. There was one time I've shared that um, there was a, a man from the Dominican Republic and he had filed for his parents and his his adult children and his grandchildren. And we had four generations of a family for the first time reunited in one place. And I got to just sit and watch and say, I got to be a part of this. Yeah. Like it, it's it's pretty phenomenal. There's so much to, to explore here. Uh, Zach, I, I want to ask you to clarify first some of the vocabulary because we talk about immigrants and sometimes we talk about refugees. Um, how would you describe that? Is that the, are those synonyms? Are those different categories of people seeking residency? Yeah, so an immigrant, by definition, is anyone that was born 
not in the United States. So we use foreign-born and immigrant. So if you're looking at census data, for instance, they don't say immigrant population, they say foreign-born. Okay. But immigrants fall into a variety of categories. One of those categories is a refugee. And what it means by a refugee, a refugee is declared a refugee by the United Nations High Commission on Refugees. It means they have fled their country because of persecution, but not just general persecution. And, it, and, and it's not fleeing because of natural disaster. It's persecution mm-hmm. based on them being in a social group. So it might be because they're of the Christian faith in a country that persecutes Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, or it might be that they're a certain ethnic group, for instance, like Burma and Myanmar, like mm-hmm. if you're Korean. And so if you had to flee, and how this works in the United States is, you know, you're usually in a refugee camp and you're vetted for over two years. Abroad. Abroad. Mm-hmm. And then a refugee comes into the United States with status. So they come in with lawful status and they're resettled in a community and we try to like get them rooted. And within a year of coming as a refugee, you can actually adjust status and become a lawful permanent resident or get a green card. So right now, for instance, much of the news is the crisis in Afghanistan. Yes. So we, we have this comprehension of tens of thousands of Afghans evacuated from their country in a queue many of them hoping to come to the United States. That's what you're describing. Yeah. They, they would actually be processed or screened outside of the country, generally speaking, and, and then get here in a, in a lawful process that is stepped in yeah. several ways. And, and those that know the details, like the Afghan situation is unique in the sense that it's a lot quicker than how other refugee processes work, but they're, they're in that humanitarian category of saying, if they stay in their home country, they will be persecuted not not just because there's general violence, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but in, in this case, you know, because they helped the American military. They're yeah, they're they're fleeing, and so that they would come in with this special humanitarian status. The other one that's humanitarian that often people get confused are asylum seekers. And an asylum seeker, it's the same definition. You have to prove that you were persecuted because of a social group. But it's not like you're vetted before you come. Asylum seekers like it is what's happening at our southern border, for instance. People are coming saying, I have been persecuted, and so I'm fearing for that persecution because, and so do I get a chance to make that case, and if I make that case, I get to stay. A refugee we've already vetted beforehand, so yes. they come in. The case was already made and closed. Exactly. Mm-hmm. With asylum, what's happening, and I really hope people grasp this, you know, so at our southern border, and you can claim asylum, maybe you came as an international student and things changed in your country of origin, and you think, if I go back because of um, my, my political party or because of my faith or any number of social groups, I might be persecuted, you can claim asylum that way too. But usually asylum seekers, we think of at our southern border. So they come, and, and the first thing that happens is they're given an interview to say, do you have credible fear? Like if, if you came, you would have, you'd say, you know, I'm Jim and here, here's why, you know, I'm, I'm turning myself in and saying, I, I want to find refuge mm-hmm. here in the United States. And, and about 90% of the people, they say, you, you do have this fear. And so they allow them to come in, but they're coming into a court process. And that's where people, I think, get confused. They think that since we're allowing people in, that we're letting them in with status, no. And we're not. They're, they're in a holding tank legally, so to speak. Yeah. Even though they might have freedom to move about. Yeah. And that is a, a window 
where they can live here up to three years or so in, in a process of court hearings. But that process always has an end date. And I understand that about 80% of those people who get that far are sent back home. Yeah. And so when you, when you claim asylum, there are only two options, really. One, you get asylum, and if you're granted asylum, then just like you, you have lawful status and you can go get a green card and move forward, or you're given an order of removal. So there really isn't an in-between. And so as you shared, while a lot of people pass that initial credible fear, when, when it actually goes to a hearing and before a judge and you start sorting out the story, you know, a lot of people don't meet what our, our bar is of, of what an asylum seeker needs to meet. And so um, I think it was 26% get approved, but the, the people from Central America, it's much lower. It's like between 12 and 18% if you're from like Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala. So all that to say, like if you're listening, and I know we got into the weeds and, and these are details, but they're so important because like you shared, like not every immigrant is a refugee, not every refugee is an asylum seeker. These are different categories. And when we allow them to like act like they're all the same, sometimes it creates this false reality, this confusion, which I think, at least for me, that's what I've learned the most over the past 10 years, is once I understand the actual reality, the, the, the real story, the real definition, it has cleared up a lot of my misunderstandings or confusion because it's like, oh, like maybe you're listening and you thought like, you know, 800,000 people came through the southern border and everyone like became a citizen. It's like, no, that, that's not at all, you know, what happened. In fact, most of the people will go through this long process and in the end be told that they don't meet um, the requirements of asylum and have to leave. And, and so it gets really hard. The whole idea of immigration, sometimes, you know, we glaze over it. It's, it's, it's like a bar graph. <laughs> You know, yeah. I see numbers, I see bar yeah. graphs. Uh, we hear the talking heads on television. There's a lot of emotion and passion and investment of energy in the subject. You're talking, though, about a ground-level game in a local church in a small town that changed course on this, and by that I mean began to address the issue instead of just allowing it to lie by the road. And I'm guessing it's because there, there was some personal face to it. Now, you've already described your own journey to Logansport, where an immigrant family who needed legal help welcomed you, and you, it, it became so human. I mean, is that a key to this whole engagement, that we have to move away from just the kind of categories? Although, on the other hand, Zach, it just seems to me, how else do we cope with something that has so vast of a dimension, 800,000 or whatever. Is this a human drama or is it dangerous to make it a human drama? I mean, the reason why we call the organization Immigrant Connection is because we often say immigration is an issue, but immigrants are people. And so sometimes people get confused, especially when they first hear about us. They say, oh, the immigration centers. And we say, no, 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 no. Like, yes, and we understand we're navigating immigration, but for us, it's it's a people first thing. And so Often people say, what changed? Because, I mean, I grew up in the Midwest, and some of the views I held, some of the things I remember saying and repeating, like, my current self would be, like, shocked at. And so would other people because they, they know my life is kind of centered around this. Um, and yet, what changed for me was not a sermon, even though I think pastors should preach on this. It was not reading a book or, or listening to a podcast or knowing the statistics. 
was a table, right? You know, the power is in the table. It's the most powerful um, place we have in any community. And it's like, once you sit across from a table, and we've seen this time and time again with people who are very opposed to immigrants, then all of a sudden, you know, they meet their first immigrants in a way that becomes like a, a personal relationship. Their kids play together. You know, they, you know, they, they work on a project together. They end up being shoulder to shoulder at a factory. Then all of a sudden things change because you hear all of this talk and then you see this face and you say, but that, that isn't that, that's not that story. And so, you know, for me, part of immigrant connection, like you said, is saying, yes, we're all about providing low cost immigration legal services and under-resourced communities through churches, but we also care just at a very root level. How do we get more people connected with more immigrants? Because that's how things really change is when you when you have that like relational, you know, knowledge. In the polarity of our time, Zach, it seems like uh, there's kind of like two ends of the political spectrum that both get worked up about this subject. Yes. What is it that conservatives need to understand that they don't get? and by conservatives are broadly termed a kind of framing of a political view, what is it they need to know that they don't understand? And at the same time, what do progressives, people on the other end of the spectrum, need to know that they don't get? What would you say? Yeah, so I think when it comes to conservatives, I really think we need to take a, a second to really just do a brief flyover of the history of immigration in our country. What I found uh, with with many people in the conservative camp is we myself included, we romanticize our immigrant past, have a tendency to villainize the immigrant present. And we say, like, do it the right way. Get in line like the rest of us. And so what you'll learn is we had pretty open immigration until the 1880s. Um, and then all of a sudden we started uh, having some federal immigration policy. Um, but even back then, when you came to the country, you came Lawfully, all you had to be is be here. Just you show were lawful. <laughs> Five years later, no test, no knowing English, no payment. You went to any court and say, I'd like to be a citizen, and they swore you in. And so that used to be the line. You know, 29 questions at Ellis Island, you have $25, you say you're coming to work, you come in lawfully. Then there's some like, there's some stains, if we're honest. If we would honestly look at immigration in our country, we'd find that in the 1920s with the, the national origins quota. Like we, we were scared of the diversity that was happening in our country. And so we said, this is 1920. We said, let's look back to the 1890 census and let's allow quotas of people. So primarily from Northwest Europe, we didn't like Southeastern Europe. Um, let's let them come to be a part of our country. And so if you were from the right place, once again, the line was no relatively problem. easy. You, you came in, you were lawful. Five years later, you could become a citizen. And we excluded people. Like what I think is quite unique, and I don't want to get on a side rail, but like we often use the poem on the Statue of the Liberty, you know, written 1883, put up in like 1903, you know, give me your poor and your tired. At the same time, the immigration law said we want to keep out anyone that's likely to be a public charge. Like the poem says, give me your poor. Our policy said, actually, no. we'd like a certain type of person and really not that type of person. But that's kind of how it worked all the way through our history. And then all of a sudden, you know, in 1965, that's kind of the Immigration and Nationality Act. That's what we live under now, which, by the way, pretty crazy that like we're still living under that from 1965. We really haven't updated it. Um, but things changed and it started saying like how you arrived mattered. 
Um, there started being fees and forms and tests and interviews, and all of a sudden the line changed drastically to the point. Here, here I'll get to it for conservatives. Here's my point. My grandparents immigrated from Poland and Slovakia. Um, so my, my dad's a second generation, I'm a third. Um, if they would come right now under the current framework, they would be undocumented. And yet if some of my best friends who are currently undocumented came when my grandparents came, they'd be U.S. citizens. And I think for me that's the shocking thing to realize is that systems have changed. Somehow we think, you know, we romanticize the past, and it's like, well, no, the reality is, is the system, it, no matter where you are, is, is broken, and, and there is more understanding once you understand that, because I think most people think, well, my grandparents did it, like, or, or you know, my yes. great-grandparents, yeah. so they just they need paid to do our this. Dues. We've they, paid our dues, why yeah, can't they? Exactly, yeah. and then all of a sudden, you're hit with, you're struck with the reality of saying, if your ancestors who you are rightly so proud of who made that journey came now, it would not have ended the same way. And if people today that we are so quick to call out, if they would have come, you know, and so there's that difference. For progressives, I think what is unique, and this has been, so two years ago there was a study done, and what they found was if if you kind of divide the country, there's kind of four thoughts on immigration and immigrants. About 23% of people are pro-immigrant. They don't talk about the border at all. It's just, we love immigrants. Immigrants are great. Then there's about 35%, that's the biggest group, that are pro-immigrant, but they gotta, you got to talk about the border. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's about 16% that say, uh, we're, we're pro-immigrant, but the border is what needs to be talked about first. Then there's about 25% that are anti-immigrant. We don't even, we just don't think immigrants should be here. Then we gave 20 topics um, the military, taxes, climate change, um, health care. What we found was the people that are pro-immigrant, they ranked immigration 13 on that list. People that are pro-immigrant, somewhat border, it was 10. If you were all border or anti-immigrant, it was a number one issue. So I say all that to say, I think for most progressives, the reality is they say they value immigrants and they're pro-immigrant, mm-hmm. but they value a lot of things. Yeah, it's really down the totem pole for them. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's very few people that they would say, oh, yeah, you know, I support dreamers or I want to see change, but it's just one of many things. And so it kind of lacks the clarity. I mean, I think one of the reasons why it's kind of used as a political football is it, it matters to one group. But the other one might pay at lip service, and it doesn't yeah. mean so. It's like I think sometimes when it comes to progressives, first off, the reality is there there obviously needs to be um, like rule of law is important. But I, I would say to people who fall into that camp, a lot of times, practically speaking, we say it's 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 a value and it's a thing that right. we care about. But there's not really a depth of engagement. Exactly, there's more engagement on the mm-hmm. other end, um, which is something that I hope changes, especially. Well, the the crisis that we face, uh, and and there is a crisis in the yeah. sense of uh, the the flooding uh, of borders around the world. We live in a world that's in transit, and and of course in the United States, there's a lot of magnetism, a lot of hope. If I could just get there. And, and the crisis of how do we manage that and what do we do? Are there any guardrails? I mean, the, the whole thing is so complex, it seems. You've been able to reduce it to a person at a time. Mm-hmm. But even with that, 
many of the people that you see can't navigate. You don't really have a way for them except to say, be be better with your suitcase, I guess. Yeah. I mean, what what's the answer? How, how would you frame it for someone? Or, or maybe it's one of those things that we can't look at it so comprehensively uh, right now that what I can do is right now person by person. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad that I don't have to come up with a full plan to put in place tomorrow. But I think there are some things that are key. We, we, we said, even when we changed from the national origins quota where it was about where you're from, we changed it to say it's about families. That's what the, it was a family preference category. So if you're a U.S. citizen, you can apply for, for your spouse, your children, your parents. If you're a green card holder, your spouse, your, your children. And that and, dramatically changed the geographic draw, didn't it? Yeah, exactly. But if we say that immigration is very much about family reunification, I think we need to, to look at what we're currently doing. In, in, so, for example, if, if you entered without inspection, so you, you didn't come with a visa, you, you just came across the border, you married a U.S. citizen, have U.S. citizen children, uh, family immigration is a two-step process. The first step is do you have the right relationship? So someone's sitting in my office, I'm like, you got the right relationship. You're married to a U.S. citizen, you have U.S. citizen children. You know, like you're mm -hmm. a family unit. So the way forward is, are you admissible? And because they didn't come in with a visa, they'd have to go back to their country of origin, that makes sense, and then come in with a visa. The problem is, in, in 1996, uh, a bill passed that said if, if you had no status, if you were unlawful for more than a year, when you leave the country, you're barred from re-entering for 10 years. So a lot of the people I talk to, you have a way forward but it would mean leaving your family for 10 years. The cost and, is untenable. Exactly. So it's things like that for me that it's saying, when, when we look at the current structure and like you said, the movement of the world and migration, it's like our current reality would say, you know, if, if they, you know, I don't, you know, if they can show they've paid taxes with an ITIN number or are willing to pay back taxes, if they, you know, have a, a clear criminal background check and their family is here, why would we make it difficult? Why would the way forward be saying for you to be a family unit and move forward, you have to be separate? It's like, no, mm -hmm. we said that family reunification matters. So let's kind of come right. up with here. So, so for me, it's like, it's these little things. It's for instance, the dreamers. We said, I think most people would say, man, when you came, when you were young, you grew up here, this is the only home, you know, not only should we give you this work permit that works for two years, and then two more years, you know, you can even travel internationally if you're a dreamer without permission. So you're just in this liminal state. I think most of us would say, well, this is, you know, they, they have proven themselves. Dreamers have gone to school and got degrees and they've worked in our, you know, in our factories and in our offices. And so why wouldn't we give them, you know, a pathway beyond just this little two-year window? And so for me, when I look at things, I'm just always saying, I'm not sure, like, you know, all the ins and outs, but I do know there are certain things that I look at that say, this doesn't even fall in line with like the values and themes that we say matter to our immigration process. So can't we at least... Can we know, harmonize it? Yeah, can so we at least kind of consistent. Because yeah. right now it's a jumble. Exactly. Yeah, and, 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 and I think the other thing that we often talk about is before we do anything else, the reality is there's at least 11 million people here that don't have status. And and we can't just turn a blind eye to that. There has to be, what do we do with that? Like, bef 
even as we think about changing how you come, what the asylum process is, how many refugees to allow in, those are all great questions. But it's like right here now in the room, <laughs> you know, we, we have this many people in the country and how are we that they're rooted in a community, most have lived here over 20 years. They're your neighbors that you would never think, you know, probably don't have status, but but might not. And so it's like, are are there avenues? Well, and I'll, I say all that to say, for Immigrant Connections purpose, I kind of, we're trail guides. So give us a new map. If you give us a new map that has more avenues, mm-hmm. we'll take it. <laughs> we'll run with it. We'll help more people. Until then... We'll just keep doing what we can do, helping, like you said, one person at a time with the map that we currently have. And that's what I think I love about Immigrant Connection. You know, we're not an advocacy group. We're, we're, we're not in like a political party. We're not partisan at all. It's like all we can do is take the current lawn structure and help people navigate through it in a way that, that gives, you know, hope and truth uh, in a future when possible. Immigrant Connection is grounded in the church. It started in your local church. It's spread across the country. Uh, there may be some people today listening who are in a church thinking, wow, is that possible in my church? Yes. Um, but before we explore that, what's your take, uh, Zach, on why the church should be doing this? I mean, we could writ that large about, well, love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? And we understand some of those stories of Jesus and definitions from the Good Samaritan on. Uh, but What's the theology? What's the biblical grounding that you have discovered and employed as a pastor to help your local church understand why this is Jesus' work? It's not shouldn't be just left to people who don't care about faith. Yeah, so three big kind of pillars that have grounded me. One is when you look at the quartet of the vulnerable, like in, in the Old Testament, time and time again, um, God says, I have this unique care and concern for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. And foreigner is, is immigrant, someone who wasn't born, you know, was born somewhere else. Um, and, and what you find when you study that is that in the ancient Near East, like in that world, in all the cultures— the king was considered a good king, a moral king, if he stood in the gap for the triad, the poor, the widow, and the orphan. So you didn't have to be part of Yahweh's family to, to think that you should care for those three. But there's this unique thing that God does where he calls his family and says, there's this other group that everyone else is going to think is a threat, is dangerous, is a mm-hmm. burden, and I want you to love them. Deuteronomy 10, I, I am the God of gods, the Lord of lords. I show no bribery. I can't be bribed. I don't have favorites. You know, I provide for widows and orphans. I love immigrants, so you should too. And I love that because it's, you know, I have all these questions. Why? It's like, follow my lead. I, I'm just going to do this and you follow me. And and what you're saying is that was a unique uh, definition for the ancient world. Very Only much Only so. the Hebrews were actually charged with this. Yes. And and more than a feeling, if you read the Old Testament, you'll find that it's tangible. It's saying they deserve a fair wage, just like native-born. They deserve Sabbath rest. They should participate in festivals. You shouldn't treat them differently if they committed a crime. There's like all these There's things equity. that... Exactly. It's yeah. like, you, this is how your love should look. Then when you come to the New Testament, um, the two big ones for me is obviously Matthew 25. Um, this isn't... I think sometimes I get confused when I... I remember when I've heard this taught before, it's when Jesus, when at the end of the age, they separate the sheep and the goats. We think this is like individual judgment. Like, what is your acts of charity? Like, how have you helped? But it says that he brings together ethnos. He's bringing together people, like 
communities, societies, local church communities. And he's saying, I'm looking at you as a group and saying, how did you care for these? And one of them, we say, and, and you know this, like sometimes language just lacks. Mm-hmm. And so we say, when I was a stranger, but it's Zenos, which is when I was a foreigner. So sometimes when we say, Jesus says, when I was a stranger, you welcome me, think, oh yeah, that was like, you know, I didn't know that guy who looked like me. Around and talk- the corner. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, love them too. But specifically, Jesus is saying, how do you as a group, and, and, and I don't know how big ethnos is, but for me, it's like I ask, like, as the bridge family, as these couple hundred people who call the bridge their home, how well are we welcoming Jesus? Because we welcome Jesus when we welcome, you know, the poor, the marginalized, and the foreigner. And that, once again, very specific. And I mean, it's a really important point, Zach. You're, you're, you're explaining, you're unpacking this famous passage in Matthew's gospel where Jesus is talking about the end of time, the yeah. end of age, the judgment day. Famously, I was sick and you cared for me. Mm-hmm. I was naked, you clothed me, and so on. And, and he's, but while that is generally understood as a specific and personal calling, uh, you're, you're reading it as it's a community calling. And I need to be sure that the community of which I'm a part is living up to this. It's not just about me yes. sending five bucks to Immigrant Connection. And that's so important. I think yeah, you just articulate yeah. so well, because I think we let ourselves off the hook because we say, here's all I've done. And then the question is like, but how about the system? How, how about how about your, your, your network, your friends and family, your church? How are we doing this together as a group? How well are we welcoming immigrants? The final one that I always come to, and once again, it's kind of a language thing, but... If you're just like the Old Testament says, if you're part of Yahweh's family, you know, if you're a Hebrew, you have this unique call to also add foreigners to the group. The writers of the New Testament, Paul, Peter, the writer of Hebrews, when they say a leader in the church, so whether you deacon, whatever you want to say, pastor, a leader in the church should have these characteristics. One of them, we've kind of lowered the bar to say, if you love people, if you're an extrovert, if you have the in-laws in your spare bedroom, if you host Thanksgiving, we say that's hospitality. Biblical hospitality is a much higher call. It's philoxenos, philo, Philadelphia, loves, and us, once again, foreigners. And so in a way that like blew my mind when I realized this, I realized that God was calling leaders to this very countercultural, because this isn't, I think people forget, this isn't something in the United States in the 21st century. This idea of like immigrants and how we should care for them, migration is all of time. <laughs> you know, every culture in the world today and historically in the world has struggled with what do we do with these newcomers? What do we do with these people that speak different languages, eat different foods? Well, aren't it, like us. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and what Jesus says, what the leaders of the church say is like, if you are going to be a part of my team, this should be this amazing gospel kingdom trait that will set you apart. And Jim, I have seen this time and time again, that because my life is marked by saying, I will be someone who loves immigrants, I get to have so many gospel conversations of like, it's like, this is kind of strange. Like, why do you lead with like blessing, not burden? Why do you lead with like open hands instead of clothes? Like, why is this? And it's like, this is Jesus in my life. I'm just following him. He has called me to have this trait. And both with immigrants and non-immigrants, these conversations come up all the time. And I think that's one of the things, once again, the mark for the Hebrews and then this mark for for leaders for Jesus, that it's like, the reason why I want you to have this characteristic is because it's me in you. You can't explain this on your own apart from saying, I didn't used to be this way, Jim, at all. And yet... 
Jesus has done a profound work in me. He welcomes me as an enemy and an outsider. And, and so he's called me to follow in that. He said, you don't need another reason. You don't need to love immigrants because you know they're good for their workforce. They make amazing food. Right. They're really good. It's like, no, just follow my lead. I love them. You do too. You don't need anything else. Just follow my And so those things help me at least be really rooted in the whole arc of Scripture saying, this should be something that every church should be about. Like every church doesn't need to open a legal office, but every church needs have, to welcome immigrants. Has a culture needs to have a culture yeah. of of Jesus in it. And yes. so again, fascinating your exegesis of the of the term hospitality. Yeah. To essentially break it down to be it's about loving foreigners. Yes. That's the the Greek roots of the word. And that does expand it past my in-laws. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Even though they might be hard. No, I have <laughs> created loss. So is that how you've helped navigate your church? Because I think in many local churches, there's tension politically. People come to the table uh, on Sunday, so to speak, of their local uh, church family, and they maybe have different views. Uh, some are, you know, walls up, uh, no way, uh, done with that. Uh, I love everybody in the world just as long as they don't move to where I live. That sounds like over the top, but I mean, that's kind of a condensation of a particular extreme view. Alternatively, you've got people who have no boundaries in in their sense of things. I mean, is this the teaching that helps overcome that? How do you thread that needle when you're leading a church to a place where you've landed? Yeah, and I think it's important to realize, I mean, I at my local church, I have people who are, as far as like from a political persuasion as far as you can get from each other. And yet they worship side by side. They they love immigrant connection. They love immigrants. And so it's not like we're we're not converting anyone to like a political ideology. We're just trying to root their thing and saying, before you think through any other lens, think through a biblical lens. And what I have found is obviously since this is so clear to my heart, if you if you're looking, people always say, well, 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 Pastor Zach, like I'm a pastor what text do I preach from? And I'm like, you can really choose any text. Like <laughs> It's all over. Exactly. It's like God's people have always been on the move. And so um, once I learned that, it was like, you know, there's usually not a Sunday that goes by that we don't like get to be able to share this theme that, hey, by the way, did you see this in there? Like we just said, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, mm-hmm. like Peter entering the home of Cornelius, like mm-hmm. that was outlandish. Mm-hmm. Jesus sharing the table with people that you should not share the table, you know? And so I think as long as we, and I think that's really a part of our identity as 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 people who who love the whole of the gospel, that like we share that often. If someone's looking at like you'd say, man, I'm in a very very a setting that if I bring this up, I might not be the pastor next Sunday. <laughs> I, I yeah. have found talking honestly about Samaria is very helpful. I think you know Samaria is that thing that makes us uncomfortable. You know the Jews bypassed it, but Jesus chooses mm-hmm. to go it to it. It was the it. other. Yeah, and, and, and then being honest and saying every, every group has had Samarias. Like, what might ours be in this community? And, and my guess is, I mean, it's more than immigrants, but immigrants is usually one of those Samarias that it's like, it makes me a little uncomfortable. Like, I, I kind of view it like it could be a threat. Like, if, if I don't have to, if I could avoid it, I will, you know? And, and just being honest about talking about, like, and yet it seems like God calls us specifically not to talk about Samaria, but to meet Samaritans <laughs> and sit with them and talk to them. And so sometimes I, I feel when I talk to people, like, that's the one 
that snuck up on me. I was someone like I, you know, who who served in the far parts. I had served in Jerusalem and Judea, and I realized I had this big blind spot. Like in uh, like ten years ago, I was like, man, I have avoided Samaria at all costs in my own life. And uh, and then all of a sudden, God called me to a Samaria, and then I was like, man, like there's a lot of amazing things that God's up to in Samaria that I can join Him in. And so sometimes that pushes down the defenses because. If not, people are like, that's not me. Like, I don't hate it. You know, and it's like, right. you know, it's just like, this is something all of us kind of have that that Jesus might be calling us to, to push into. And then the wonder is, and you know this, Jim, because you have uh, a, a, a view of not only the United States, but the world. And, and the reality is the church, like that, that harvest, that was when Jesus says, there's this unique harvest, my disciples, this harvest that you don't have to work for. It's already ready. We just need workers. That's a Samaritan harvest, right? Yeah. And so like what I found at the bridge was people were like, well, how'd you revive your church? I'm like, I didn't do anything. Jesus had already been working. I just offered welcome. And then all of a sudden the church, like and not every church I know resurrects, but that's what happened to ours. And I didn't have anything to do with it other than just get a, be an eyewitness of resurrection. It was like, because there was this harvest already present in my town waiting for someone to say, you're welcome. You can come sit, sit at the table. And it was like, I didn't really do anything other than God had already been at work long before I came. And I said, I'll, I'll be one of the workers in the harvest. That's easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, let's, come on. I, I'll say what you are, are modestly asserting that the progress of the church called the bridge in Logansport uh, is in no small part consequent to your willingness to take the dare. Mm. And yes, the harvest was there and you have helped organize the workers, so to speak. Yeah. But what we haven't just said out loud, we let's just make clear, the church that you were sent to close yeah. now is flourishing. Yes. And in a small town, it's become a very big and important piece of the whole community and its witness, not just in the immigrant connection, but its witness of Jesus, the welcoming Jesus, is is deep and wide, yeah. Zach. And that's one reason I'm so glad to have you and all that to say is just to help inspire all of us to think about what we might do. As you were talking, I, I was thinking about some of my own prejudices and my own, you know, challenges of stretching and growing. I think all of us have room to grow. And when it comes to my relationships with the world around me, I I wonder, I captured, I, I spoke for other people when I said just a few moments ago, well, they're not like us, mm -hmm. you know, because that's yeah. that's kind of the, the meme, isn't it? Uh, I'm glad for those people to be in their place, not my place, or they're not like us, therefore, uh, our welcome is for people like us. I mean, at so many levels, I've been a pastor, church can be like that. We like more people like us to build our church. <laughs> it's much more stretching to have people who are not like us. But as, as I even came out of my mouth and I've been reviewing it in my head, I'm thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute. That's, that's, that's so like off the mark. Everybody is like us. <laughs> Every person created in the image of God mm, is like us. I've traveled a lot abroad and uh, again, Zach, as you were talking, and we talked about the judgment day, and you kind of, we all have this kind of like image of what that might be like. Uh, fuzzy for me most of the time, but still, there's a crowd of people, and there's Jesus, and there's kind of a, a question and answer test. 
I think about traveling and, and you come into a country and there's always immigration lines and, and the lines are demarcated, aren't they? You know, yeah. like passport holders. Yep. Uh, if you're going to Europe, EU passport holders, you know, and so on. Yeah. And I was thinking, you know, when it comes to entering the kingdom of heaven, there really isn't any um, demarcation of the lines, is there? I mean, everybody can get in the line. And it doesn't matter what passport you carry. And our churches sometimes have placed passports ahead of that kingdom truth. You're engaged in helping uh, the church, the community of Jesus people, followers of Jesus, come to terms with what we can do in the here and now. Yeah. And it's so amazing. I have to say, uh, Zach, I'm I'm looking at you, you know, I'm your father, I'm the old man, but hey, we've got some things going in common like we're both here in Indiana. Yep. We're white guys. Yeah. It might seem like an unlikely character, Zach, <laughs> uh, to become this voice, this advocate for engagement. Uh, in a world where uh, most people who are in that immigration queue don't look like us. Does that ever strike you? Does it matter, or, or, or do we have some extra work to do, those of us who are already here, uh, in helping others understand? Yeah, I mean, I, it strikes me often. Often I'll be asked to speak um, in my community, region, around the nation, and you know, I'm speaking not as an immigrant, but like for immigrants, um, but I'm a, I'm a white male, and I, and I recognize that. I think one of the big things that... Uh, I have learned is is we need to talk about this even as you know native born people in the majority culture we need to challenge one another encourage each other in this one of the things that I was challenged with early on when I started befriending immigrants was that I realized I was in a vacuum that when I looked as a pastor most of my books were written by white western men um, like almost every commentary I pick up mm -hmm. was that most of the movies, like if I'm on Netflix and it happens to be like, it looks good and then it has subtitles, I'm like, turn this off, you know? <laughs> and that I found that like I was in this vacuum surrounded only by people just like me. Mm -hmm. And someone challenged uh, my family and said, what if every five at least you mixed it up? What if like you made sure that like a commentary or a book or a journal like was written by... Uh, a Latin American theologian or an African church leader. What if you put yourself like under, uh, you know, uh, someone else that that was different and said, "I, I want to submit to your leadership." You know, what if you did, you know, watch the movie that was in subtitles? What if, like for us, like we learned in our home, it was like, man, the people that we share our table with, a lot of the people look like us, you know, and it's like, what if we always tried to say, we want to make sure that our table guests are different. And in doing that, I realized a lot of my blind spots. I realized that like, I need to do a better job, even as a pastor of a multilingual, multicultural church, that like, I have work to do. I, and I was aware of that. And I realized only when I started placing myself in, in those positions, one of the, the most, um, just like when Lindy said, we're home in Logansport, another key moment in my life was uh, I had been going to a lot of events because of Immigrant Connection, and I was sharing my best friend who's an immigrant, his story. And he said, Zach, as a white male, you seem to love the, the verse in the Bible that talks about being for a voice for the voiceless. But what you've forgotten is that I have a voice and you're not listening. 
And I realized, like, I say that as a white male to, like, others. Like, we, we need to do a better job of listening. You know, some of us love communicating. Some of us, like myself, and think, I think I can tell your story actually better than you can. You know, it's like, but it's like, no, like, my place is to say, um, how do I not just always lead? How do I... How do I not just have an equal voice like the kingdom cares about equity? How do I just sit and listen? How do I become proximate to suffering? How do I realize that I can't save everyone that like I'm just called to listen? And so like I think that's really important. Um, and I think we have a role, those of us that like have have gone on this journey to tell others, please join this journey with us. Like, you know, it, it, you will be so blessed, you know, by it. Like I am, I have been welcomed far more than I've welcomed. Um, I have been changed far more than I've helped others be changed. And so like others need to take the journey too. And we can't just wait. Like I think, yes, we do need to empower immigrant churches in our communities. Uh, that's where the church planning movement is growing in leaps and bounds. Um, and yet our churches too need to be willing to say, what is our role in this community? Even if you're an all-white church listening, it's like you still have a role of how you can welcome well. And it doesn't mean that you have to change your service and like mm-hmm. offer, but it's like there are ways that you can tangibly show welcome and say this isn't for just those kind of churches to do the us versus mm-hmm. them. It's like this is for all of us to be involved in this work in the community. The immigrant connection uh, helps empower churches to help under-resourced communities find their way to legal and uh, appropriate landing in this country. Is that a good restatement of where you are? Yeah, yeah, so. And, and, and more than that, it also expands our horizons about the family of God, the integrity of every person made in the image of God, and in a way, I think, humbles us all, no matter where we've come from, to understand we all need a welcome sometime, somewhere. So proud to know you, Zach, honestly. Uh, of all the people I've met in the last year, few people have impressed me more. You're articulate, you're passionate, you're wise, and you're courageous. And thanks for being all that today on All That to Say. Thank you so much, Jim. You're so encouraging. Well, it's the truth. And once more, we thank our audience for joining us today and uh, hope that you will put that like on social media, uh, subscribe to YouTube, give us a comment in that social media feed, tune in again. We are so glad that you joined us for All That to Say. For more information, visit allthattosay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe.